I started working in uh, big four accounting and quickly learned that I couldn't do that for 40 years. I, I was like, this is crazy. I don't know why anyone would sign up for this. Right. And so mm. I uh, wanted to see that I thought there had to be a way without winning the lottery to kind of accelerate. Because at first it was about how do I get out of this? Welcome to the On Fire Podcast, episode 39, with your hosts, Matt and Kellen. In the On Fire Podcast, we discuss financial independence, real estate investing, frugality, minimalism, and retiring early. But before we get into today's episode, what we need you guys to do is jump over on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this on and leave us a five-star rating and a written review. Today's episode is with Chris from The Stealthy Rich. Chris is a very down-earth guy, while at the same time owning over 80 single-family homes and plus 200 units in apartment buildings. He has an amazing story to share. Yeah, I've always loved the idea of stealth wealth, and I know it can mean a few different things to different people, but it's definitely a lesson that I learned the hard way in the corporate world is that it's oftentimes to be selective or it's best to be selective with who you share your information with, especially when you're on your real estate investing or just financial independence journey. But enough chatting. Let's hear a quick word from our sponsors and then dive into the interview. This episode is sponsored by the Findlay Mortgage Team. The Findlay Team was born out of the idea that through exceptional service and expert advice, they can create a world of more accessible capital for their clients. As real estate capital advisors, their mission is to assist investors in strategically scaling their portfolios. They understand the struggle that investors face and how difficult it can be to scale once the banks say no. Their experts find alternative solutions by leveraging institutional and private capital stacks, strong networks, and competitive products, allowing them to offer an industry-leading service that is unparalleled in the Canadian real estate market. All right. So on the show today, we have the Stealthy Rich. So it's the Stealthy Rich is Chris and Dave. And on the show right now, we have Chris. And uh, they kind of describe themselves as two normal family guys. They've purchased over 75 properties in the last seven years. And the goal of it is for them to control their finances and do whatever they want with their lives. So they're kind of sharing their story. They have a website, thestealthyrich.com, where they share articles and, and their stories. So thank you so much for jumping on the show, Chris. Thanks, Kellen and Matt. Really appreciate your podcast. Happy to be here. I love talking real estate. So this is this is perfect for me. Awesome. Well, glad to have you here as well, Chris. And I'm sure we'll dive more into this later, but I'd love to hear just kind of a brief summary or snapshot of what the last year has looked like for you. Well, the last year, okay. Well, obviously it's been that unique for a lot of people, but we kind of went off the edge and bought 200 doors of apartments. And so for the last seven years, we've been in single family houses. But in last November, December timeframe, we 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 found a uh, third partner and went all in on on multifamily. So we have 200 doors in the Houston area that we're starting to to get our teeth cut on. So it's it's been exciting. Other than that, I've just uh, you know been trying to stay stay healthy. It's been you know I watch the news and Texas has been I'm in Houston been fairly insulated compared to everything else. We're fairly normal down here in terms of uh, how everything is played out through through the virus. But um, so we've been very grateful for that. But other than that, we're just uh, trying to trying to stay healthy and, and keep the keep the real estate going. That's awesome. So let's let's reel it back quite a bit because I mean you just bought 200 doors yes. or so that's which is amazing. <laughs> so let's let's start right back at the very beginning. So you know at a younger age or so like what what kind of brought you into the idea of financial independence and you know real estate investing in the first place? What was your what was your introduction into that? Right. So I, I grew up in a, a very loving family, I, I, and my dad was 
always taught me the value of money. He, he worked for the same company for, for his whole career, uh, which is very common, I think, in, the, in those days. And so I went to college and I got a degree in information systems in the business school and you know, started working in uh, big four accounting and quickly learned that I couldn't do that for 40 years. I, I was like, this is crazy. I don't know why anyone would sign up for this, right? And so I uh, wanted to see, there, I thought there had to be a way without winning the lottery to, to kind of accelerate. Because at first it was about how do I get out of this, right? So that the first, the first answer was, well, retirement, right? And, <laughs> and, yeah. and so I, you know, kind of limped through a career with the big four, just kind of, I called it cubicle hell, right? And luckily one day, uh, back in 2013, I, I uh, went to lunch and met Dave, who's my my business partner now, and we were just kind of lamenting about you know our jobs. Not that we hated them, but just like they were you know they were very stressful, and you know we were always tired, and we were grateful for them, but still. And we said we well, had there be had to be something else, right? There had to be something better. And he had done he had dabbled in real estate in in law school in another city, and had come over. He had now his job in Houston. And he said, hey, you know, we should get into real estate. And I perked right up because I'd always knew that real estate was, was the answer for me. And the reason I knew that is because before I dabbled so much in the market, right? Not day trading, but just trying to, you know, pick winners and, and, and follow the market. And I quickly learned there that I had less information than the big institutions, right? The big jumps always happened after trading or before trading. And I thought, you know what? I'm never going to get ahead here. And so when he said real estate, I was like, we've got to do this. And so we started with five guys, five partners. They were all at that lunch, actually. And we bought over the course of probably four or five months, we bought five homes in Houston off the MLS, off the, off the, the, the market. And kind of started this process of long-term rentals. And so then after that, Dave and I kind of split from those other guys very amicably, but just, you know, they weren't as passionate about it. And then we went on a tear learning all kinds of skills and creative ways to, to do things. And I think we've, you know, we bought over 80 different single family homes in the last seven years. And, uh, and then now we started the department. So it all started, you know, kind of wanting to understand how can I buy freedom or how can I shorten my, my life sentence in the cubicle, if you will. (laughs) So, uh, and so it was, you know, that was the incentive at first. And now I probably work harder than I ever have, but I enjoy it. And it's, uh, you know, and it's for, for me and my family rather than for, for an employer. It's awesome. So over 80, like they were mostly single family homes for the most part. So all those 80. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of started, we'd, we'd buy them and we had some really interesting financings. So like the first couple that we bought with those with those friends, one of the partners had a some access to some interesting financing from Merrill Lynch, which was interest only financing, which was fantastic. So our mm-hmm. like our first, I'll never forget our first house. I think it was twelve hundred dollars in rent. It cost us ninety thousand dollars to buy, and the monthly payment was ninety two dollars because it was interest only pegged on uh, LIBOR out of London, which was like at the time was like 1.2%. And wow. so unfortunately, I, you know, that that's not normal. And so I was like, wow, this is great. We have like a thousand dollar cash flow every month. Uh, <laughs> but the problem with yeah. those loans is that they did require 30% down. So we ran out of runway real quick in terms of down payments to buy houses. So we had to transition away from that financing eventually. 
but that's how we kind of got our jump start in, into it, right? And so, yeah. So, like most most investors are, you know, they're they're getting their first two or three, and then what was kind of the shift there in order to like, you know, you really wanted to scale up to that seventy five properties, right? What did the structure look like? What did the financing look like? Like, how did you approach something at that scale? Good point. So, so we realized that you know we saw this journey. Say, hey, you know, we're making you know two or three hundred dollars a month in cash flow in a, in a normal property that wasn't interest only. It was stay on a normal on a normal property. And we said, hey, we've got to get as many of these as we can, right? We have to scale this because I could see this being able to explode. And then also the fact that houses typically appreciate, right? So all of these kind of uh, tools, if you will, were pointing in the right direction to say, we need as much as this as we can. And so what we did at first is we bought, Dave and I, once we kind of separated, we started buying the, the junkers, if you will, off, off the uh, MLS, off the from real estate, right? So there are houses no one else would touch, either that terrible foundation or a bad roof or you know, just just a terrible looking place. And this is back in like 2014, 2015. And we were getting them for, you know, 70, 80, 90 thousand dollars. And eventually those ran out, right? Because we stopped being able to find those. And so then we started doing direct mail. And that is really where I would say the bulk of our properties have come from is by sending what we call yellow letters, which is a, you know, it's just a piece of paper that we print on a cursive looking font that says, Hey, I'll buy your house and, you know, call me. And I'm an IT guy. So I built our own list off the, the tax databases, the property tax databases here in Houston for, to kind of target exactly the kind of people we were looking for people that have owned the house for a long time. So they probably have some equity people who are non-owner occupied. So they don't live in the house and, you know, certain size, certain zip code and all those things. And so we'd send these letters out. We'd send about a thousand a month, and we were buying houses at one point. We were buying one a month, and and then so then your next question is, I'm sure, how did you how were you able to do that from a financing perspective? And so at first we would use cash that we had for a down payment, and our, our lenders would do fifteen to twenty percent. I'll get into lenders in a minute, but quickly we then would run out of of down payments, and so we would then get a house off a yellow letter or direct mail, and then we would flip it to have cash to then buy one or two more, uh, you know, one or two more long-term properties. And, and it was really sad. It was like giving away one of your children. Anytime we had to sell one of those, it was really sad. And so we wanted to avoid having to do that in the future. And that is when we were kind of introduced or it kind of fell on our lap, the concept of Burr, right? The Burr method. And so of course, which is to buy a house, to rehab it, to rent it, and then to refinance. And so those were the steps that we would do. And of course, and I can go through the numbers exactly, but let's just say a standard house for us off a yellow letter, we'd pay $90,000 for it. And that'd be a three bedroom, two bath house, about 1,500 square feet. And you know, maybe a, a landlord had just had a tenant move out and they didn't want to refill it, or you know, they bought it 10 years prior and they were just done being a landlord and they'd sell it to us for you know, $90,000. And let's say it needed you know, floors and paint and you know odds and ends and let's, we spent $10,000 to get it rent ready. So now we're in at $100,000. We bought that house and we either used our own money or we used our rich friends money or some you know some short-term money that we borrowed to get that house ready. Then we'd rent it and then we'd call up our bank and we tell them we have this house, it doesn't have a loan on it, but we'd like a loan. And they say great and they would do an in-house appraisal and determine that it's worth this is easy numbers here. It's worth $125,000. And then they would give us 80% of that, which in this case would be $100,000. And 
So they would give us $100,000, which then make us whole. And we own this house. It's renting for $1,300 and paying us two or $300 a month. And we would repeat that over and over and over again until we couldn't find any more houses. <laughs> so that's kind of where we're at today. But the Burr method is primarily the way that we are able to scale so fast and so efficiently, so quickly. Appreciate that you're yeah. diving so deep into it, Chris. So we do have a lot of real estate investors that listen to this podcast. And I'm sure you know a lot of their ears perked up when you told us what's occurred in the last year in acquiring 200 units, as well as the shift in strategy. So before maybe even talking about that deal or the set of deals that made that and why you guys chose to pivot, for a lot of beginner investors that start off with small multifamilies, they're constantly thinking the grass is always greener on the large multifamily. Is that the case? Is that why you guys decided to move into this uh, niche or strategy? That is a fantastic question, man. And I think that the jury is still out, right? Because I always heard the same thing, right? I listen to all kinds of apartment podcasts and they're like, man, I skipped single family and went straight to multifamily and I never looked back, right? And I think the jury is still out for us. Uh, we've only been, you know, it's only been six months. We will see. I know that for our specific situation with single families, Dave and I have made it very lucrative for ourselves. And that's because we, we also self-manage. And so we have built, and I, I know I've heard on your podcast many times, we've built so many different systems that work very well for us. And it's very efficient for our single family homes. And of course, on the multifamily, we are paying a very good property manager, but we just feel a little more disconnected from that. And there's other, we syndicated that one. So we have some syndicated investors there. We are general partners on that one. But so, so we just feel a little bit more, it's, it's, it's like not quite our, our baby, if you will. Right. And so, but maybe in a year when, when the financials get done, I'll be like, wow, why would, why did I ever have these single family houses? But still, Obviously, the bulk of our my net worth is tied to those single family houses, and so they're truly my my first love. And I definitely am not trying to shed them or anything yet because they have been nothing but but productive and awesome for Dave and I. And so I'm hopeful. That's why we did the multifamilies because we always heard how how great it is. But you know, it's not. I don't quite know the answer to that yet. But I'm hopeful in a year that I'll have an answer for you. That's funny because the next question I was going to ask is like, what do you think the next five or 10 years is looking like at this point? Because, you know, so much of the focus was on the single family homes. Now the large multifamily, you know, do you have any idea what that might look like? What your, you know, your new plan might be? Because I mean, so much of the value, like so much of, you know, successful people, you find that they find a strategy and they rinse and repeat it, which is what you've done. And now it's switching up a little bit. So yeah. What do you think the, the future looks like? Yeah, I mean, so there's so many people I and I hear them on, on your podcast and others where it's like they just keep they keep doing things, they keep going. At some point, I want to be done. Now that you could define what done means, right? But I don't think I'll ever, you know, just lay around. But at some point I want to just kind of, you know, have a shift in, in lifestyle. And for me, the single family homes, once we either pay those off or get them in a position where it's we're out of what we call the growth mode and we're in the the principal pay down or the cash flow mode, if you will. I think we've built enough, right? We're at now. And the apartments, I don't want to say they're too big, but I think my brain has not been able to wrap around the the repercussions of owning those yet. Right. And so to be honest, I, you know, I'm planning for the next five years of some significant inflation. We'll see if that comes to, to light. The Fed keeps trying to and 
we hear stories of all these commodities going up, but they still say inflation has not happened, which I don't know how they track that stuff, but <laughs> the stories are not aligning. But so if, if inflation does go up, and we've seen this even in Houston, which is typically our, our rents and our home values have just tracked with inflation over the last 15 years. That is not the case in the last year because of COVID and what else. The prices are going through the roof, right? Not as, not as bad as other places like Denver and the coast and whatnot, but still, I mean, places are getting multiple offers on the first day and our rents have also gone up significantly. And at some point I can't see how my tenant base can afford to live in these anymore. And I don't know what replaces them. And so I'm hopeful. My, my, my goal was to buy as many assets as I could before a great inflationary period. And that is what I'm, you know, so my calculus is that we're going to have an inflationary period and hopefully I will benefit from owning a ton of assets, right? And so, but I do, to your point, what is amazing to me is for every $30 that we raise rent on our apartments. So, so one of them, there's two, actually two buildings, one's 50 units and the other one's 145 units ish. The 145 unit for every $30 we raise rent across the board, that raises the value of the apartment by a million dollars. And that when I hear numbers like that, that just blows my mind, right? And so, but as, and we've already raised it like at $80. And so in six months, because it was way under rented before. And so, so yes, I mean, the next five years, I'm hopeful, unless prices come down, I don't see Dave and I acquiring a lot of other properties just because of comparison of where we bought and where it is now. And it just doesn't make sense to us financially, even though it probably still does for some people. And we have enough already. And so I think we're just trying to get into the cash flow stage of, of our, of our investment and, and, and pay down a lot of these properties. Awesome. Yeah. really appreciate you breaking that down for us. And so I kind of want to explore, you know, the stealthy rich. So sure. what's the importance <laughs> of stealth and that stealth wealth or all that? And yeah. I guess it's something that I used to talk about a bunch on my channel. And I just realized it's been a while since I really chatted. So I'd love for you just to jump into it. So, you know, the old, the original book is not an original idea, but the millionaire next door, right? That was, I loved that book when I was younger and the idea and Ravit Sethi also has concepts like this, that, you know, Dave and I, we, you know, we live in nice areas, but we, you know, he drives a, I think like a 2010 Honda Accord and I, or, or you know, a, a little bit older Honda Accord and I drive like a 2007 Santa Fe and, you know, and they work great and we love those cars, but neither one of us are a car guy. And otherwise though, we do have, like, we both have pools in our houses. We live in nice houses. And so I think for us, it's the idea that we spend our money on things that bring us value and that. We don't spend money on the things that don't. I know that sounds really like straightforward, but for most people, I don't see that as something they follow, right? And so we we're very meticulous on where we where we get value and we spend money on that religiously. And then the stealth part of it is Dave and I both still had when we started this, we both still have W2 jobs. We do those because we still enjoy them and they bring us, you know, joy. And we were just trying to do this on the side kind of just educate people on on real estate and what we've learned and kind of document our journey to fire right and so and i've kind of changed that term I, you know I, fire movement was great uh, and like many of your other guests have said you know what's the end for me i've kind of changed that acronym to flare flare like a and so which is financially liberated able to retire early but i'm not going to <laughs> right and so, like that. I so I'm, that. I'm, it's more of a flare than a fire now for me, but that's definitely, <laughs> that's where I'm at. And so like, I think in my ideal world and maybe 
maybe once I got there, it wouldn't be so ideal. But if I could just work three days a week, right, or maybe three and a half, or maybe just every day for like three or four hours, then then I'd be good, right? And then rest of my time, I'd be spending with my family, you know, carting them all over the place, or uh, you know, helping other people, right, in the, in in my community. And so those are kind of the goals from the so the stealthy rich is so much not so much flaunting the wealth, but just having the wealth primarily built up in what we call net worth, right? And tracking that net worth, which is not based on material things, most likely it's based on, you know, either real estate investments or whatnot. And that is what truly will then bring you freedom in the long term, freedom from, you know, a, a job you hate or a place you don't like to live or, uh, you know, and, and so forth. Yeah. I appreciate you uh, breaking that down for us, Chris. And I guess I've got a follow-up question here too. And just curious your thoughts and your personal experience, and I'll maybe first preface it with mine. So I also came up through the accounting world, uh, worked for BDO originally, and then a publicly traded company afterwards. And I guess definitely an aspect of stealth wealth or stealth rich that comes to mind for me was, I feel like I kind of learned the hard way at the accounting firm. And then I made sure I didn't make the same mistake at my next employer where I was obsessed with real estate. So I would just talk to anyone about anything to do with real estate. And I found that, you know, sometimes come promotion that a partner would be like, well, can you really be that focused on your files if you're also building up this real estate empire? So love <laughs> to hear just your general thoughts and opinions on that, Chris, and if you've got any experiences. Yeah. So for me, it's basically like two worlds. And so I have my work world where I'm completely dedicated and there's very few people that I share my my personal world with. And so, I mean, only like one of them knows uh, one or two know about this uh, persona, if you will. And so, and it also, but that's because I, I work remote. And so, you know, these aren't people I'm going to the office to every day, you know, physically with, and I've always worked remote, even pre COVID. And then there's my local community where I can't shut up about real estate because I love it. Right. And so anytime we're at a party, my wife is always like embarrassed. Cause like, I'm always in the corner with some guy talking about real estate. Right. And so so it really has been just a focused effort to keep them separate. And that has been, and and, and again, a a function of why we don't really share our identities on on our uh, profile or whatnot is because, you know, we just don't see the need yet and to keep it kind of separate from work and, you know, stealthy. So, okay. So (laughs) I have a kind of the elephant in the room that I'm surprised, like I'm sure some of our listeners might've been caught off guard there. You're still working a full-time job. Is that right? That's right. So I'm an IT consultant. And so <laughs> I work from home. I don't commute. And we have created this, and this is going to sound crazy, right? So Dave and I run this whole thing off the side of our desks less than 10 hours a week, right? Uh, probably five. And so it really is something. And I always tell people, right? It's like, how do you, how do you build something? You have a couple of choices to build something to help you exit the WT workforce, right? You can either build your own business or, uh, you know, win the lottery or get rich in the stock market or crypto or whatever, or you can uh, do real estate. And for me, real estate, with my knowledge and my personality, was the best way to do it while still giving an honest, you know, time to my employer. And that is, you know, my job is flexible in terms of, uh, if you know, if I'm like, I'm doing this right now in the middle of the day, I don't have any meetings. And so that's okay. But, and then I'll work tonight, you know, I got bang out some emails or whatever. But so 
being you know having a that kind of job has made the flexible the flexibility to be able to own real estate. The big follow up question here, which I mean. I'll give you some context. In London, yeah. Ontario here, where we are, there's a lot of people that we, we have a local community about financial independence. And and a lot of people here, luckily, we have a lot of support because we're open with, with our, our friends about what we're up to. And we probably are a little bit quiet about our employers with it as well. And But we end up getting this positive pressure from our fellow, you know, fire community members that are like, when are you going to quit your job, right? And I imagine you, I don't know how much pressure or how much you know, how many people in your life are asking you that question, but it maybe you've been asked it a million times. Oh yeah. Why, why are you still working the job? Right. Cause like, they, they you, ask me that all the well. time. <laughs> no, you're right. Kellen. They ask me that all the time and they kind of make fun of me. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so, I always tell people I'm five bad days away, right. From quitting. So five bad days in a row. Yeah. And so like, if we got a rough time at work and they're like, okay, Chris, what day is this? Like, well, it's day three, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But no, truly, I, I work for a very, an amazing company. It's small. It's not, it's typically not stressful and I love it. Right. And so, but at some point, if, if I get put in a role, that doesn't make sense. Or if, you know, something changes there, I can't quit. I think, I think it's more of, you know, we have a little bit different situation here in the U S with medical insurance and whatnot. That's still mm-hmm. kind of iffy. And so my insurance is fantastic currently. Yeah. And so, and I got four kids. So it's like, I'm one broken arm away from a disaster. <laughs> so, yeah. so, but to your point, I think I enjoy my job and, you know, we talk, Dave and I talk about that every day. He has an equally flexible job. He's a CFO for a trucking company and it's, you know, we like our jobs and so we still do them, but you know, and, and to be honest, you know, when, once we get to the end, I'll, I'll answer your questions, but there might be, you know, maybe, maybe I should have, maybe I should have quit my job already. I don't know. What could I have? So sometimes I ask myself, what could I have grown this to had I applied all of my mental forces to it, right? Over the last couple of years. So yeah. we call them the golden handcuffs, right? They're the golden handcuffs. They keep us comfortable, but they maybe they limit our, our progress. I don't know. So Well, the only reason I ask is, well, one of the reasons I ask is because, you know, I know, so Matt here, uh, uh, he quit his job, I forget how many years ago now. And then, you know, there was some pressure, of positive pressure from him and a bunch of other friends that were like, when are you going to quit your job? And then a couple of years ago now, I quit my job. I worked in the tech world as well. You mentioned your information systems. Like I did a, I was working toward a master's degree in information systems. So similar kind of idea. And, you know, it was a part of my identity, but I wasn't, I wasn't super passionate about it. And for me, I wasn't, I didn't actually love my job like you do. But one thing we did notice with literally every single person I know who's been a successful real estate investor that has then quit their job is that they make more in that first six months after quitting their jobs, you know, than they had in any other six month period in their life. And I mean, God knows what the reason is, but I would imagine a big part of it is just they have so much more mental bandwidth. They have so much more Correct. time in their day. And yeah, they the put all their effort. They put all their yeah. effort, right? No, I took, I talk about it all the time, you know? And so the yeah. other day when I introduced myself to somebody new uh, next to my wife, my, I, I told him, I said, what do you do, Chris? I said, I'm a real estate investor. And my wife turned to me and looked at me like, what? You've never said that before, right? So maybe, maybe, maybe I'm shifting. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. It's happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean that, and that's the thing. As I look back, you know, maybe I should have quit a while ago, but it's it's still pretty good, so I, I I keep it. So yeah, no, that's good. One other question is, you know, on your Instagram profile, it mentions the idea of net worth, your net worth journey. Is that something where you're sharing that publicly? Are you are you kind of showing that net worth journey between you and Dave, or is that something? Yeah. So we yeah. So me and Dave 
we share it all the time with each other. And then we do share it on Instagram because nobody knows who we are. And so it's, yeah. And so we can, right. (laughs) So that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, but, and that's, I mean, it happens almost every week. Dave's like, dude, we should just be done. Like we could be done if we wanted to, like we we do that, you know, we, we run the Trinity study numbers or we run whatever calculations, like we could be done, but you know, it's like, why, you know, everything's going smooth. Let's just ride it a little longer. So I, I don't know when that, when the right time to flip the switch is, but, but yeah. it's closer than it was yesterday. Well, so. the opportunity made itself very clear to myself when, when it happened. And I know to Matt, it was even clearer. You know, my situation was I was about to quit my job. I, I was two weeks away. I was like, I'm going to quit my job, leave on a van trip, travel around the USA, live in the sprinter van with my girlfriend and the dog. And, and, we did, but right before I went to quit, I got laid off. So it kind of oh. worked out, kind of worked out perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> um, like li- within the two weeks uh, of uh, me being ready to quit. And then, you know, Matt, I don't know if you wanted to share your story here because, you know, the opportunity presented itself pretty clearly to you too. And, you know, maybe something similar ends up happening with Chris. It's, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we're ten- we tend to be waiting for someone to make that decision for us, right? we're not quitters, right? Like we're the type who persist. Right. And it's a tough thing for us to, to convince ourselves to quit. But I think Matt has, Matt has a pretty interesting story about what, 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 what it looked like for him, you know? Yeah. I'll try and cover it briefly here, but essentially, you know, I, and it's kind of funny with hindsight, I uh, had switched career paths essentially so that I could qualify for more mortgages so I could buy more real estate so I could quit my job faster and nice. <laughs> uh, I found myself working at a uh, publicly traded pharmaceutical company, and we went through a series of acquisitions and mergers. And uh, I found myself at an inflection point where we had recently just been acquired, and there was a team of consultants coming in to help us uh, learn our job functions to find uh, efficiencies and uh, synergies and any other buzzword you could think of. And like these consultants weren't good people. And three days in a row, they had made one of my staff members, an AP clerk, cry. And finally, on the third day, I realized, like, why am I here? Why am I allowing this? And uh, at the same time, there were so many VPs and other departments that they just had to toe the company line because they didn't have that financial backing, right? They didn't have a financial uh, fortress of solitude, as I like to think of it. And you know, that to me was definitely when I saw Plato's cave and just realized that all I had to do was step out. But I think it is very much a personal journey. I love the idea of flair though, as well, because to me, financial independence is really just about having choices. And right. I think Options. that, yeah, one big lesson for a lot of people that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast at home, even if you love your job, I hope the last year has taught you, you can love your job and your job can still let you go can still become obsolete can be rendered no longer essential and uh it's so much easier to navigate life when you've got that financial fortress of solitude love it all right awesome well i'm going to jump into the fire force so we'd like to ask every guest the same four questions chris and the first question is what are you grateful for all right well obviously i my family at this last for this last year i'm with them more than ever now with code some of our some of our kids we kept out of the school system just because of the going in and out because of shutdowns and whatnot and so my poor wife might not say that she's been pulling her hair out but it's been good being with the, with the family a lot and we've done some kind of random sporadic travel and so that's been great as well so being together and and spending time has been been amazing 
I love that. And kind of switching gears, what would be a guilty pleasure or something in life that, you know, some sort of indulgence that you don't think you can live without? Oh, man. So in the last year, I have started playing pickleball every day. You probably never even heard of pickleball. Have you? I've heard of it. Okay. It's taken the world by storm. So all your listeners should go play pickleball. I play all the time and it has helped me get in shape. I've forged all kinds of friendships and I've gotten quite good at it. So I play, I like, I think about it day and night and I have to stop myself from buying stupid new paddles because it's just a waste of money, even though I love it. So pickleball is my guilty pleasure. So I have in to, fact, I have in to fact, <laughs> in fact, I've thought about opening a facility. Like I, I want to build like a 15 court facility here in Houston because it's really popular, like in uh, Utah and Seattle and the coast. And it's just barely making its way here. And I was like, well, I should capitalize and build a big facility. You know, but, but that's <laughs> king of pickleball. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have, a, I have to add, jump in before Matt gets to our third question. And like, you, you know, you talk like you're obviously you're doing very well financially. You still work the full-time job. You're looking, you're, you're still clearly frugal in terms of your spending. You know, you have, you know, you said you have the nice house and stuff, but you have the, you know, you have the car. I drive a Hyundai Accent myself. So I, I, yeah. I, I'm the same. I did 2010 Love Hyundai, Hyundai. Yes. <laughs> but what are some of the things that you do enjoy spending money on? Because, you know, like I found for me, one of the things I love spending money on is anything that saves me time. So I love hiring cleaner. I have a cleaner now, yes. like any, yes. anything like that, that can just save me time is some of my favorite stuff. No, you're right. I mean, so that's why I have four kids. I pay them to do things all the time. It's great. <laughs> and so like, in fact, I'm looking out the window right now on this beautiful day and my son is mowing the lawn and it's <laughs> so it's true. No, but, um, yes, independence. I, yes, I have, I have, I have, I used to always buy in the cheapest food, right. Just like whatever the brand X, whatever the store brand was. And, and as I, you know, started to make a little more money, I, I splurge on the nicer food and I, it makes a difference. Right. And so like, I used to always like calculate, the cost per ounce or whatever. And like, buy the, and now I'm just like, okay, I like this bacon the best. I'm willing to pay you know, $5 a pound or whatever. So definitely I splurge on food. Now I like a nice pair of shoes, a really nice pair of shoes that'll last me a long time. So there, there's definitely some nice things in life. Those might sound silly, but yeah, that's uh, I, I can totally uh, relate to that. Love it. <laughs> nice. Question number three, is there a frugality tip or life hack that you could share with the audience? Ooh, okay, a couple. So I use on, so I, we are an Amazon family. We buy all kinds of stuff on Amazon. Anytime, like to your point, even I don't even know if it costs more than what Walmart, what it costs to Walmart, but if they can come to my front door, I'm going to get it. And so this doesn't work so much on Amazon, but any other websites, I use a lot of the cashback plugins on Chrome or whatever. There's uh, Ebates, but now it's I yeah. think Rakuten and then there's Slick Deals. There's a couple other ones. And you know, you just have them up there and it'll tell you, hey, Click this button and you'll save 5%. You'll get 5% cash back on whatever you buy today. Uh, that's great. And then this one's kind of a little more advanced, but I used to be the guy. In fact, there's a couple of blog posts on my website about this, about credit card manufactured spend. At, at one point, I was manufacturing $75,000 a month in credit card. <laughs> and maybe that's time for another podcast. <laughs> but uh, so, it, you know, and I was making, you know, 5% on that every month. But I like to buy like Amazon gift cards at the grocery store, like the $500 ones and get, you know, a significant cash back off my credit card and significant fuel points. I don't know how they do it in Canada, but here in the U S you get fuel points and then you can use that to get money off your, uh, when you fill up at the, at the station. And so 
it comes out to about 20% off everything I buy at Amazon if I do it that way. And so oh, that's neat. That, that's definitely a, a tactic I use. So um, uh, it saves us money in the long term. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. All right. So we have a hard hitting question. So the last question of the fire four is what would the hero of your own movie do in your life right now? So to give some context for that, the idea is that, you know, if you're watching a movie, you're the main character of this movie, you're kind of watching this movie right now and you're kind of cheering, you're hoping for that character to do something, right? You're watching, you're like, I know this is what they should do, but you know, and you're kind of just cheering for them. What what do you think that might be for you right now? I got two answers. The first one would be to quit my job, right? So that's what we're going to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first one. But the second one would be, uh, and this is related, is that I've been trying, I just don't have the time because of all the other things that we were just talking about, is to really improve our website to increase, you know, search engine optimization and whatnot. And I have I've taken the courses. I've, I've studied it. It's just a time effort, but I would love to turn that into significant income, right? Each I, I, I read stories from the groups I met of people that have turned in, you know, their, their niche websites into five, seven, fifteen thousand dollars a month. That would be fantastic, right? And so that is what this dude needs to do in his next act of his play, in my opinion. So that's, that's what I'm going to work on at some point this year. Nice. Well, thanks, Chris, for being on the show. And before we wrap up here, we always like to get our guests to ask the audience a question. So do you have a question for the audience? Yes, I do. And this one is kind of uh, unique. It's like, who are you going to help today? Right. And so I love and as part of our, our mantra with the Stealthy Rich is we always tell everybody we'll help anyone who asks. Right. And so whether it be advice or whatever, and we, you know, we're not trying to sell too much on our on our websites or anything. We're not selling courses or anything like that. And so the abundance mindset says enough for everyone. Who are you going to help today? Whether it's opening the door for somebody or, you know, bringing your neighbor some cookies or giving someone some advice. Uh, and maybe that person is yourself, right? If you're a person, if you need help and you got to, you know, get yourself out of a debt or out of a hole first mentally or spiritually or physically, whatever, do that. Just like in the airplane, you put your oxygen mask on first before you can help somebody else. And I think that's love that. the, I love that the primary goal of what we're trying to do here, David and I, with, with Flare or Fire, whatever, is that once we have figured out and secured our financial future, then we are able to help others, you know, in our community and a really kind of, and that, in, in my opinion, is where you get lifelong joy, right? Lasting joy, lasting happiness. And so that's my question. So, you know, ask yourself every day, who can you help today? Well, even if it's something simple. I love that. And so where is the best place for people to find, follow, or get in touch with you? Yeah. So we are very active on Instagram at the Stealthy Rich. And then our website where we kind of break down, we break down every deal we've done. Uh, I'm, I've still got a few left to do, but uh, it's thestealthyrich.com. You can also email us there if you have any questions or DM us on, on Instagram. And so we hope to, to see you guys there. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you joining us. You're welcome. Thanks, thanks, Chris. It was amazing to catch up with Chris and really just hear his entire story and experiences. And it blows my mind that he's able to do everything he's done up until this point while also still managing that full-time job. And hopefully it's a great lesson for anyone listening to uh, this episode as well, that you can actually accomplish a lot while still working your day job. I know that was true of myself. Callan was able to do even more than me while he had his day job. And it seems like Chris is doing everything while still having this day job. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I had like, I think I said I was at 32 units when I quit. He's 
well, well beyond that. So I'm not going to lie. I'm really just crossing my fingers that Chris is the hero of his own movie. And in the coming year, we get to see him uh, hopefully decide to go full-time real estate. Yeah, absolutely. And while you guys are waiting for the next episode, jump over to Facebook and join the London on Fire community and follow us on Instagram at On Fire Podcast. And make sure to tune into the next On Fire podcast to meet more people, hear their stories, and learn from their mistakes. No, it'd be awesome, guys. If you could leave us a five-star rating and written review, I don't even care what platform it's on. It's just really important because it helps us with the uh, podcast algorithm. So thanks for listening. This is Matt. And Kellen signing off. And until next episode, remember, being normal, buying stuff doesn't make you happy. And always remember what Dr. Thomas J. Stanley said. One of the reasons that millionaires are economically successful is that they think differently.